Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. Verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now, there is kind of a pause here in Genesis chapter 5. In this chapter, we move from Adam all the way to Noah. And what's interesting to me is that as we begin chapter 5, God reminds us through his writer here that he is focused on man. That God is focused on man. Flip in your Bibles real quickly to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. We can say all we want that God is focused on man, but that idea is bizarre. It's it's unheard of. Well, it's not unheard of because Scripture tells us it's the case, but it should be unheard of. It doesn't make human sense. It's like for me to say at this point right now that George W. Bush, as President of the United States, spends all of his time thinking about me. Focused on me. He's in the White House right now, and I am the topic of conversation at dinner with Laura. That's, they're talking about me, because I am so important to the President of the United States. It's like getting all the world leaders of our planet together, and they sit down and they focus on those of us in Anacortes, because we're the most important thing. It makes no human sense. But you see, that's exactly what God does. The master of the universe, creator of all things, the God of all things, looks at every one of us. And this is mind-boggling. You know, people say they have trouble with, with eternity. This is my, my son Hayden. His biggest struggle right now is how could God have always been there and will always be there? And, and we struggle with that thought. It's a big thought. You know what's a bigger thought? That the God of eternity considers me. That is a huge thought. That's one that I cannot get my, my arms around. Listen to this. Psalm 8, verse 1. Oh, Lord. Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him, Yet, you have made him a little lower than God, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That is a psalm of irony. To begin with the majesty of God and then to recognize that God considers man. As we study through God's word and as we're in the Genesis right now, don't forget that God is human focused. That God cares about man. And as we start again, Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So five chapters in, God again returns us to this fact. Hey, don't forget, don't forget we have this connection. Don't forget that you are made in my likeness. Don't forget that that you're important to me. Verse 2, he created the male and female and he blessed them and he named them man in the day in which they were created. This thought of God considering man is astounding, especially in light of what man has done over the last six or seven thousand years. Amazing. 
Remember that in these last few chapters of Genesis we've read that man did not start out very well. In the first four chapters of human existence, we've seen the following. Disobedience, deceit, defiance, jealousy, rage, murder, arrogance, pride, polygamy, and more murder. That's how man starts out in the first four chapters of Genesis. What does God do in those first four chapters? He loves. He forgives. He protects. He puts his mark on a guy like Cain, a murderer like Cain. We watch God react like God and act like God. Just this last Wednesday, I was talking to a girl who comes to the Wednesday in the book study. And she was saying that she had never before looked at God with this kind of mercy. And she said, I know that God's supposed to be merciful, but I've always struggled with Old Testament stuff. Because, like, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. She said, I never realized before that the reason he moved them out of the garden and protected the tree of life was that they would go back and eat of the tree of life and live forever in a corrupt state. She said, it was an act of mercy. And I never knew that before. And as we talked, I just shared with her, you know what? If you start with God as a merciful God, if you will look at him the way the Bible describes him, which is a merciful, loving, graceful God, if you start there, then all scripture is graceful. If you think of God as judgmental, as harsh, as mean, as, as ready to put his thumb down on anybody and stamp people out, then that's what you're going to see of God in scripture. But see, the Bible describes a loving God. The contrast between God and man in these first few chapters of Genesis is dramatic. We talked about the way of Cain. Remember that Cain determined to hide his face from the Lord. And that Cain made the decision to go out from the presence of the Lord. This is what Cain did. And then Cain had some offspring. And you may recall some of them. Guys like Mahujael. Mahujael whose name means blot out the name of the Lord. This was the man's name. Or what about Lamech who was the first polygamist and the second murderer. This was all in the line of Cain. And the line of Cain is dark and it's ugly. And it leaves you mostly in despair. But chapter 4 did leave us with a glimmer of hope. In chapter 4, verse 26, just above the verse we just read, it says to Seth, To him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to, began to call upon the name of the Lord. And remember, if, if you weren't here, this phrase literally is translated not men began to call upon the name of the Lord but men began to be called by the name of the Lord you and I are called by the name of the Lord I'm a Christian a Christian a little Christ I am of Jesus I'm called by the name of the Lord and we talked about two weeks ago that's my identity that's that's where my heart is that's what makes me who I am that I am called by the name of the Lord and that is what we begin to see in Seth's line. Men who began to be called by the name of the Lord. And so we come to this godly line of Seth. And as it begins, these first two verses that we just read, it almost gives me a feeling that God is being nostalgic. I don't know how many of you saw it in the movie, but it begins with a camera panning across a room as confetti lay strewn about the floor. And wedding gifts surrounded by disheveled wrapping paper are stacked in the corner. Plates and glasses and silverware are left to be put away. And you land on the father of the bride as he's rubbing his feet. And he begins to recount the last year of his life from his daughters telling him that she was engaged all the way through the wedding. Have you ever seen Steve Martin in The Father of the Bride? It's a great movie. Very funny. But there's a moment there that, that's really touching as he's kind of looking back over and thinking. The whole movie really is him thinking through all that's happened. 
And as you begin Genesis 5, I get that same sense from God. Here's God. He's the father of the bride. He's also the father of the broom. And for a moment, he pauses to consider that first wedding ceremony. He says he created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. That day when he took Eve's hand and he took Adam's hand and he put them together in the garden. That moment. That was the first marriage. The first wedding. Does God feel good about it? Does he ordain marriages? Absolutely. That's the way Jesus said it's been from the very beginning. I think God recalls here in his mind, he recalls to our minds, not only that Adam was created in his likeness, but that he created the male and female and blessed them and named them man. He named them man. Now, it doesn't say that he pronounced them Mr. and Mrs. Adam. And it doesn't tell us that he named them Adam and Eve hyphen Adam. That wasn't their names. It wasn't even Adam and Eve. As far as God is concerned, and remember this, in Genesis 3.20, Adam names Eve. God did not name Eve. Adam did. What are you saying? I'm saying that God named Adam and Eve Adam. That's what it says. And the day he blessed them and named them man. It's the word Adam. So God named them Adam. One name. Why is this important? Two really quick things to note. Two quick things to know that are very important as, as we go on into this. Number one, our culture cultivates marital disunity. Now I think that Ron did a, a, a beautiful job this morning talking about uh, marital unity and how to resolve conflict in a marriage. And if you weren't there, get the tape because it was, it was really good. But our culture cultivates marital disunity. How does it do that? Well, remember, Genesis 2.24 tells us, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And I've said this before, and I will probably say it again, and you may disagree with me, and that's fine. Now, you're you know, entitled to your opinion. But I'm increasingly convinced that we are too hung up on our male and female differences. That what our society and even our churches do is focus on how different we are. But God says that we were made in his likeness. Not that we were made as these different creatures. Now we are different. I'll give you that. Granted, obviously. I don't understand women any more than they understand me. Okay, Men and women are different. But if all we do in our world, in our churches, in our marriages is focus on our differences, how will we ever find our likeness? It's God who says he made us in his likeness. And Galatians 3.28, Paul said, hey, there's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. I think that the key to, to a, a healthy marriage is trying to find our similarities. Trying to revel in our likeness and not so much in our differences because our differences have a tendency to divide us. Now you say, well, Rick, what about my identity? If I'm always you know, trying to find my likeness with my wife or, or with my husband, what about my own personal identity? And I take you right back to Seth's line. Your identity is not in you. It's not in your sex. It's in the fact that you are called by the name of the Lord. That's your identity. It's not that I'm male, female. There is not male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. I am Christian. That's what I am. And the more I love Jesus, and the more I pursue Jesus, and the more I try to, to like Him and be like Him, the better my marriage is going to be because 
that's going to rub off in the way I treat my wife, in the way she treats me, if she's pursuing Jesus. So, though our culture cultivates marital disunity from the very beginning, God wants to cultivate likeness. In my likeness, he says. Second thing that you ought to note here is that our culture cultivates sexual perplexity. Sexual perplexity. Again, Genesis 2.24 tells us, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, we already talked about this, but this is important. People in our world today really believe, and in our society, in our culture, they really believe that when a man and a woman come together sexually, it's two bodies, it's two experiences, and it's two people who can go about their daily lives separately after that. And that is unbiblical. That is completely contrary to what Scripture teaches about the sexual connection of a man and a woman. The Word of God deals with sexual intimacy as oneness. Specifically, sexual intimacy. When a man and a woman come together, and forgive my brashness here, but when a man and a woman come together and they have sex, when that happens, the Word of God says they have now become one. They are now one person. There is a connection there that God intended from the beginning to be one. We think, well, and I'm not saying we so much, but turn on the TV tonight and just start watching. Give it 15 minutes. You don't even have to give it that long, probably five minutes, and you will see. Our culture's attitude is, you can have sex with anybody and, and walk away from it. And it doesn't mean anything. It was just an act. It's like drinking a beer. You know, it, it, it's an act of pleasure, like, like going out and seeing a good movie, you know, or whatever, and you can walk away from it, and you're fine. And the Bible says, no, that's not right. And because we have these, these bizarre attitudes, listen to this, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32. Now, I'm going I'm to go a little hard on this for a minute, and, and then we'll, we'll come back and soften up. But listen, Proverbs 6.32 in the New King James Version says, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, first of all. In other words, you're an idiot. But, moving on from that, he goes on and says, He who does so destroys his own soul. He who does so, it doesn't say is... In, in danger of sexually transmitted diseases. It doesn't say he who does so might end up with AIDS. It doesn't say he who does so is in danger of losing himself emotionally. No. He who does so destroys his own soul. To commit adultery with a woman means that I have now destroyed my soul. Because you can't take in, in, the, in the humanity that God created, in our, in our humanness, in our our, everything that we are we are physical we are emotional we are spiritual all those things that make up who we are it's all together and you can't separate it out you can't say well I'm going to go have my spiritual life over here and my physical carnal life over here which is why so many of us especially when we begin to follow Jesus struggle because the two struggle together because they're all connected I am a spiritual person I am a physical person and what I do physically does affect me spiritually and vice versa what I do spiritually affects me physically. Flip in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, real quickly here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're reading verse 15. 
Let's let Paul put an even finer point on it. Remembering that verse, Proverbs 6.32, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. And now Paul picks up the pen. 1 Corinthians 6.15 and says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. Now, understand here, I'm going to read a little bit more. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, this seaside town where sin is pretty rampant. And things, the prostitution that was going on there was more than just street prostitution. This was temple prostitution. The type of prostitution dealt with. People were coming to Christ, coming to the Lord out of pagan lifestyles and were used to this whole idea of temple prostitution. This is a problem that was dealt with or, or that the church in Corinth was facing. And Paul's going, listen, you can't just go off to a prostitute. You've given your body, your life, everything that you are to Christ. And now if you go over there, what you're doing is you're taking the body of Christ and connecting it in this act of oneness with a prostitute. You can't do that. He goes on. Verse 17, he says, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now that's a good oneness. Verse 18, Flee immorality. Literally, the word there is not immorality. I don't know why it's softened. It's cornea. It's sexual immorality. It's where we get our word pornography. Flee cornea. Flee sexual immorality. Every, and there is a difference, by the way, Check this out. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man, and there it is again, the pornea man, the sexually immoral man, sins against his own body. Now this is one of those interesting moments in Scripture where Paul draws a line and says there is a difference between sins. God may look at sins all the same, and every sin may be forgivable except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. God may take the whole bag of sins that, that we present and say, I, you know, I'm going to look at it all the same. I will forgive anything. But that doesn't mean that every sin affects us the same way. There are differences. There are differences. And here's one. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Man, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. If our culture could understand how serious this is, it would change everything. Our schools teaching our students protection. You know what protection is? It's one woman married to one man for one life. That's protection. Anything else, anything outside of that is not protection, it's pornea. And Paul says it clearly and God says it clearly. You know what? That will destroy your soul. God called them Adam. He calls us to marital unity. He calls us to sexual oneness. Therefore, let's glorify God not only in our souls, but let's glorify Him in our bodies. In what we do with our bodies, let our physical bodies bring glory to the Lord as well. Now, you may say, okay, but what if I've committed adultery? Have I already destroyed my own soul? 
Well, we could take it a step further. Jesus said in Matthew 5.27, You've heard it that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Man, I hate that verse. <laughs> and as a teenager, I really hated that verse. You know, growing up, I, me- I remember when I, when I read this and I started to understand and I started to think, Oh, no. I've committed adultery and I'm not even 15. <laughs> I've looked, I've gone, I went to the beach. Southern California boy, understand this. I went to the beach for one reason and one reason alone. I didn't like surfing. It wasn't the deal for me. It wasn't the sand, you know, that ends up getting in your hair and your shorts and, you, you know, who wants that? It was the sightseeing. <laughs> That's why my buddies and I went down to the beach. That's why we did it. And I thought it was innocent. Hey, we weren't doing anything. It was look, don't touch. I wasn't off sleeping with all kinds of girls. But you know what? I read this verse and Jesus goes, Yeah, you were. You were. Now, I love what pastors do with this. I've heard some say, It's not the first look that counts. It's the second. (laughs) You know, or as long as it's no longer than 20 seconds that you look at that woman and then turn away. You're okay. You haven't committed adultery. You know what the reality is? There are men all over the planet who have committed adultery. In fact, I'm not sure that there is a man on the planet who hasn't committed adultery. And so I say to that, God, have I already destroyed my own soul? Have I already done it? If if looking at a woman and having lust for her in, in, in my heart, if that's happened in my life, confession time from Pastor Rick, then is my soul destroyed? And, and ladies, take peace. You know, at this point in my life, a wonderful marriage, wonderful wife, everything. So this is not an issue for me. <laughs> but it was back before I was married. How do you deal with that? And with the fact that not only is the entertainment business the number one industry in America now, but pornography is the number one industry within the entertainment business. Number one. It is the largest industry on the internet, and I'm not even going to go to statistics on that right now, but it's huge. How many men, and women now too, by the way, are are just online doing exactly what Jesus said, lusting after the opposite sex and committing adultery. But when I back away from that and I go, okay, wait, I've, I've been married to my wife Cheryl, 17 years now, never ever been unfaithful, never thought about being unfaithful, had a, had a great, we've had a great marriage, continue to. I thank God every day that I, that I landed a winner, you know? Like, but when I think about before and, and where we go, when we sit in a rated R movie and we watch a couple having sex, you can't tell me that we don't somehow start to place ourselves there. It's a vicarious experience. In the same way that you watch a, a similar, similarly rated movie and someone blows someone else away and you go, yeah. <laughs> we feel and experience these things and we think, well, but it's up there and I'm down here. And Jesus goes, no, it's, it's, it's in your heart. Your experience, that's lust. It's, it's giving the flesh all that it desires without really giving it. That's, that's you know, the Pharisees would say you could do that. So what do I do? Have I already destroyed my own soul? Where does that leave all of us? It leaves us right in the hands of the shepherd. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. I have destroyed my soul. I have. 
I have messed it up. I've scarred it. I've left black marks all over it. But he restores it. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Why would he do that? For his namesake. Not for me. It's because he's God. It's because he is that merciful, loving, gracious God. When I mess it up, he cleans it up. Not because he's trying to, to make sure that nobody saw me mess it up, but because that's who he is. He is the restorer of souls. Do you think you're really the only one with personal soul damage here tonight? I mean, it, it, it's funny to me that, that sometimes we, we go down that little spiral and we end up at the bottom of the barrel thinking, I'm just the worst person in the world. Come on. You know, we are in the bottom of the barrel together. We have all been there. We will all at some point emotionally probably go there again. Can I encourage you when you go there to remember that you can destroy your soul, but God can restore your soul? You may wonder, and I, this just happened. I was with someone, and, and I, you probably experienced this kind of thing where you say something, a faux pas, a, a slip, and, and like a bad word will come out. But, and you don't even use bad words, but somehow you meant to say shoot, you know? But instead of shoot, you said, you know, shot. I was say. And, and you, didn't, you don't even use that word, but boom, it pops out. And, and people heard you, and you're like, oh no, oh no, what have I done? I don't even, no, understand, I don't talk like that. And they're like, yeah, oh, yeah, sure, you know, yeah, I see you with a hammer, and you come back. If you've ever been in that situation, you know, how, do, how do I get over this guilt over just the dumb stuff? I was talking to someone last week who did that very thing in front of me, in front of the pastor. Which just cracks me up because pastors are no different. But people do. They think we're different. They do. They look at us and they go, oh, that's the pastor. They do that. But this person said this very word. Not shoot, but the other one meant to say shoot. Said, and, and I'm standing there and... and I'm so sorry. I don't talk like that. I never use that language. And I'm like, I, I, you know, okay, I'm not judging. You know, I've used that word before. <laughs> Myself. I said, I've said worse in a sermon than what you just said there. You know, when things slip like that. But we can't, we can't talk. And let me tell you what happened. Here's the, here's the sad thing. And if this person ever hears the tape, I'm in big trouble. But the sad thing is, that this person went home after saying that and began to struggle with it and began to think about it and was up all night long and called me at 9 o'clock the next morning and said, I just, I need the time. I was out. Called me. I got home, got the message. This person is, I'm really having a hard time here. Uh-oh. He called the person back and we began to talk. And this had just taken over this person's thoughts. And what a picture of exactly what Satan does. Remember, Revelation 12 tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. And not just to God, but to us. He accuses and accuses and accuses over and over and over, and he wants us to feel every wrong thing we've ever done. How do I get this restoration? I'll tell you, you do what Adam and Eve did not do. You start by just confessing. Lord. I said this word, didn't even mean to say this word, but I said this word and I just feel so dumb. And in the moment you confess and begin to experience God's restoration, you realize that was dumb. You know what was dumb? Not that that word slipped out, but that I spent all night worrying about it. That was dumb. Because that's not what God's doing. God's sitting up there going, don't worry, come on. You know, I am, I am the God of grace. 
You're not going you're gonna do a lot worse than that. No big deal, let's move on. Confess to the Father who already knows what you've done, and then just repent. Which is not that whole religious it's just turning to God. Just turn to Him. If Adam and Eve, back in the beginning, had originally just turned to God, how would that have changed everything? Father, we ate the fruit, we didn't know what to do, and now we're naked, and you know, but they went the fig leaves and that we've already done that study. God is the restorer of souls. Well, as we've looked at chapter 4, we saw the degenerations of Cain. I want to look now at the generations of Adam through his son Seth and see what happens for people who begin to call upon the name of the Lord or be called by the name of the Lord. Verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Right there, other sons and daughters. Where did Mrs. Cain come from? Well, Adam had other sons and daughters. There were other people there. Verse 8, so all the days of Seth, oh, sorry, verse 5, so all the days of Adam, that Adam lived, were 930 years, and he died. Now, for a moment here. I want you to kind of highlight in your minds those three words. And he died. Because Genesis chapter 5 has been called by some the graveyard of early Genesis. And he died. Listen quickly to the headstones in this chapter. I'm just going to call them out by verse. Verse 5. Adam died at age 930. Like a headstone in Genesis 5 we see Adam lived blah died 930 years later. Then we move on to verse 8. Seth. Seth lived 912 years and he died. Verse 11. Enosh lived 905 years and he died. Verse 14. Kenan lived 912 years and he died. Verse 17. Mahalalel lived 895 years and he died. Jared, verse 20, lived 962 years and he died. Verse 27, Methuselah, the oldest man ever to live, lived 969 years, and he died. Verse 31, Lamech lived seven, and this is a different Lamech from Cain's line, this is now the Lamech and Seth line. He lived 777 years, and he died. God makes it clear in the generations of Adam that death happens. It happens. Verse, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Did they? Yes, they did. Well, not in that day. They began to die in that day. In that day, death entered the world. I'll take it a step further. For those of you who were here a couple weeks ago, I mentioned this. Interesting that 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And according to this verse, Adam at 939 did die in the day he ate of the tree. If a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, did Adam go over a thousand? No, he came close. But he did die. He did die. Death has been the way of man ever since on the earth. 1 Corinthians 15.22 tells us, For as in Adam, all die. All die. Now with the rest of our time tonight, I just want to look at two headstones. 
Because all these different guys, and, and you could take the time and, and on your own do a study of each individual guy, and, and there's some interesting things to be discovered here. But two characters stand out, I think, brilliantly in this chapter, and we need to look at them. And the first one is a guy by the name of Methuselah. Look in verse 25. Methuselah. Verse 25. Methuselah lived 187 years. And he became the father of Lamech. And then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. And he died. Now Methuselah's name means in his death it shall be sent. But here's an interesting question. Why is it that Methuselah lived longer than anyone else in history? Why did he live 969 years? Because in his name, when he is dead, it shall be sent. And God was putting off the flood as long as possible. He was waiting. He knew in the year of Methuselah's death that the flood would be sent. So he let Methuselah live longer than anyone else. And it's a picture of the patience and the mercy of God. We'll see this when we study the flood. And we'll see next week and following weeks... Some of the things in, in the New Testament commentary about the Old Testament to describe the patience of God when he waited in the days of Noah. You may say, it's not fair that the world got flooded and everybody died. Yeah, 969 years God waited to send the flood. In fact, the truth is, he waited longer than that. Because you see, Enoch, Methuselah's father, named Methuselah as a living prophecy. Four generations before the flood, Enoch named his son Methuselah. In his death or dying, it shall be sent. Speaking of the flood, folks, people had four generations to prepare for the coming deluge. And I think that's why Methuselah lived longer than anybody else. Because God kept putting off the inevitable because he is a God of grace and mercy. 1 Peter 3.20, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, I said that there were two headstones of interest, and that's actually kind of a little bit misleading. There's actually one headstone of interest to me, and that's Methuselah. The other one didn't have a headstone because they couldn't find the body. They had no idea what happened to him. In fact, in the middle of this so-called graveyard, we are given a hint as to the exception to the rule of death. And this is incredibly cool. Verse 21. Enoch. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God. And just stop there real quickly. Uh, it's just interesting to me. And you see the same thing with Seth. Seth had a son and then he began to call upon the name of the Lord. Enoch had a son and then he walked with God. And so often that's what happens. The miracle of, of having a child. There's something about having a child that kind of wakes people up. And I tell you that for one reason and one reason alone. If you know people who have small children, they are prime targets for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say that, what? They need something. They do. They need a little help when they're driving back from Bellingham and complaining about the road. But people who have children especially, and I'm not trying to be, you know, subversive. Well, maybe a little subversive, but not... You know, looking for opportunities. It's amazing how children open our eyes. 
and how that's what happens here with Enoch. He then walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters, the Bible tells us, verse 23, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Not a really old man by the accounting of this chapter. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. He's the only name in the whole chapter where he doesn't have a headstone. And the only name that doesn't follow, or isn't followed by, and he died. Because Enoch did not die. Enoch gives us a picture of two amazing promises to come, and you need to hear these. The first one is that Enoch is the first person in Scripture, the first person in history, to be raptured. Enoch walked with God, and God took him. Harpazo, it's not the word used here, but the word harpazo in the New Testament for rapture means to cut up, to snatch out, to grab and pull out. And that's exactly what happens here. God, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He pulled him out. Enoch is a picture of those people who will not die. And there are people who will not die. John chapter 11, verse 25 through 26. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection. Now listen to this closely. You may have heard this verse before, but listen to the contrast of what he's saying. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's one type of person. If you believe in Jesus, you will live even if you die. There's another type of person, though. Jesus says, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, I used to read that and say, I don't get it. He says, if I believe in him, and I, and I will live even if he dies, even if I die. But if I live and believe in him, I'll never die. So which is it? Will I die or will I not die? Well, there are going to be those who believe in Jesus and die, and they will live. And there will be those who believe in Jesus and will just go on living, just like Enoch, in the rapture of the church. Jesus is indicating here in, in John chapter 11 that there are those who will never die. Not just that guy who never died, Enoch. Elijah is another one in the Old Testament, by the way, who was taken up, fiery chariot. That's cool. When the rapture happens, if God happens to have a few extra chariots, that's how I'm going. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15.51 Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now listen, it's a mystery because it was something that was not understood before. It was a revelation. The word is mysterion. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In other words, some are going to sleep, but not everyone. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So Paul calls this rapture of the church a great mystery. I said mysterion, that's the Greek word here. And mysterion literally means something that was unknown before but is now revealed. Now there were little hints of it. Enoch is a type, he's a picture of the rapture. Early on, here we are, Genesis chapter 5, early on there's a picture of this. A little sneak preview that God kind of pops in there. And, you know, Enoch's family, what did they think? Where's Enoch? He's out talking with God, you know. And it's getting later and later and later, and he never comes back. So they start to search for the body. And they search, and they had a lot of time to search in those days. <laughs> Hundreds of years. We just never found him. Well, the last I saw him, and I can't be sure about this because it was gray and it was evening and, I, and my eyes were playing tricks on me, but I thought he was just kind of taken off. <laughs> 
I don't think his feet were on the ground. He just kept going. And he looked like he was in such a good mood and having such a good time. He was. Isn't that cool? He was just walking with God and God said, Hey, why go home? Let's come on home with me. Okay, cool. Off they go. The first rapture. I'm personally convinced, folks. I am I'm convinced that this is the generation that will see the rapture of the church. I really think we're right there. And every time I turn on the news, you know, it's not, let me back off from that, because it's not all the negative stuff. There are so many positive, amazing things happening in the world today that I look at those and I go, wow. One little hint, I don't know if I mentioned to you all this before. In the Gospel of Luke, we have a parallel passage, and I believe it's Luke 21. In fact, you know what, we got time tonight. Flip over to Luke 21. Anyway, I shared this before, and I'm sure there's someone in here who missed this, so the rest of us will just share it with you. You've you got to see this. Just absolutely amazing. Yeah, Luke chapter 21. And in this whole chapter, Jesus, it's the parallel passage to Matthew chapter 24, which we have looked at a lot. Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the rapture of the church. Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the end times and really gives a startling, stunning picture. Matthew 24 is where Jesus says, Take a, learn a lesson from the parable of the fig tree. And we talked about that recently here too. The parable of the fig tree. And remember, the fig tree in scripture represents Israel. And when the fig tree blossoms, when its leaves, when, it, when its branches become tender, you know that summer is near. And we talked about how in 1948 Israel became a nation again. And from that point forward, the fig tree is, has blossomed, folks. And Jesus said, this generation, which one? The one alive at the time of the blossoming of the fig tree. This generation, generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. What things? The end times. The rapture of the church. The tribulation on earth and the return of Jesus in the, and the time of setting up the great millennium that generation alive at the time of the blossoming fig tree will not pass away now look at Luke 21 something that has confused a lot of people a lot of scholars verse 29 tells us then he told them a parable okay this is the parallel passage this is Luke's version of the same conversation but Luke adds something he says behold the fig tree and all the trees as soon as they put forth leaves, you see and you know for yourself that the summer is now near. What does that mean? There are those scholars who have said, well, because of the addition of and all the trees, that the fig tree is not Israel. That it's just a generic kind of, Jesus is just saying, you know, when the summer is near, so just kind of keep watch. But there's a book out right now called A Season for All Times. A Season for All Times by a man, in fact, just met him last week, a guy named Ray Rimpt. Dr. Ray Rimpt, R-E-M-P-T. Just met him down at a Calvary pastor's uh, breakfast. And Ray Rimpt took that verse and he began to look at it and study it and say, well, wait a minute. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. If the fig tree represents the nation of Israel, then shouldn't we, in this generation that saw the blossoming of Israel, see the blossoming of all the trees, a bunch of nations? Since the time of the fall of the Cold War, the falling of the Berlin Wall, as a matter of fact, from the dates, and I'm, I'm not going to get a lot of this, because this is just off the top of my head, but from 1989 to 19... 92-93 upwards of 25 nations blossomed that has never happened in the history of the world 
Nations that were subdued. People groups, and this word nations even, talking about ethnic groups that were subdued. We look at Iraq right now, we know that there are the Kurds in the north. And we know that there are different divisions, right, in, in Iraq. All over the, the, the control, under, underneath actually, the control of the Soviet Union were so many different people groups and ethnic groups. And so now we have Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and all these stands, a bunch of stands over in the Middle East. And all of these, with many others, Germany has blossomed like never before, at least not like since before World War II. And if you read this book, and, and I encourage you to pick it up, A Season for All Time by Ray Rams, he goes through and he gives the stats on all of these nations that are blossoming in this generation, and it explains beautifully, behold the fig tree and all the trees. Not only will the fig tree blossom, but numerous nations in the world will all blossom at the same time. And when you see that happening, oh, then you know the summer is near. I think we're close. I really do. And it thrills me to my core. D.L. Moody, it's one of my favorite quotes. You've heard it several times if you've been in here before. He who is born once will die twice. But he who is born twice will die once, if at all. He who is born once will die twice. In other words, if you are born of the flesh and you never have the second birth, if you're never born again, you will die twice. You'll die the physical birth and you will die the spiritual birth. The Bible talks about two deaths very clearly. But if I'm born twice, born physically, but then born again spiritually, worst case scenario, I'm going to die once. Best case scenario, I'm going to walk like Enoch. That's what I want, folks. That's what I'm hoping for in my life. I want to walk like Enoch. Well, you may say, okay, how do I know that I'm in this category of people that will be raptured? How can I just, I want to be sure. You know, I want to be absolutely sure so when it happens, I'm not left here, you know, while everybody else goes. I don't want to be left behind. How can I be sure? Well, look at Enoch. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 tells us something very interesting about Enoch. It tells us that by faith, Enoch was taken up. He was caught up. He was raptured. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, check this out, he was pleasing to God. So that's all you got to be. All you've got to be is pleasing to God, and you will be taken up just like Enoch. Now you might say, okay, but pleasing to God is hard. Remember we were just talking about this whole adultery lust thing. We were just talking about how I destroyed my soul. That can't be pleasing to God. How do I do it? The phrase taken up in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 is not harpazo. It's actually metatithemi. And it's literally translated, translated. It means by faith, Enoch was translated. In the same way, and that's a great word for what will happen at the rapture. In the same way one language is translated into another to be understood, so our physical selves will be translated into our spiritual glorified selves so it's better to understand what we really are, who we really are, what we, we were truly created for. And 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, Paul goes on and he says, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
Why would death be swallowed up in victory? Because there is going to be a mass of people who will not die. Death at the end times loses. Not every human being ever to live. As a matter of fact, the mass of people who will be raptured is going to be a huge number of people. Just based on the number of people alive on the planet right now. Death does not win. It loses. And we, we may be part of that. I think we will be part of that. But again, how can I, like Enoch, live a life that is pleasing to God? The first two words of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5. By faith. By faith Enoch was taken up. By faith Enoch was pleasing to God. Not by works, not by his behavior, but because he believed. He believed in God. And when God said, hey Enoch, do you want to come home with me? Enoch believed him. Yeah, I want to come home with you. Do you think I can just take you right on up right now? Yeah, I think you can take me right on up right now. Cool, let's go. And off they went. Enoch believed. It was by faith. It is that simple. I don't know why we have to make it so complicated. Listen again to the, to the first two words. By faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. Going back and that says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old, like Enoch, gained approval. Even in Old Testament times, folks, it was never about what we could do, but about believing in what God has done. Romans 10.9, if you believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so the first amazing promise in this picture of Enoch is the rapture. That Enoch was the first person to take it up, and so can you and I be taken up. And I pray that it happens, and as I said, I believe this generation will see it happen. I think I've told you this before, but when I was a kid, I used to look at history, and I'd look at the past, and I'd think, oh, I kind of wish I could have lived then. Or even as a young Bible student in college, I, I used to say, I wish I could have lived in the first century with the first century church. That would have been so cool. You mean the first 30 years, or even live long enough back to, to like live with Jesus, see him working, and, and then live on into the church. I wouldn't want to live any other time than right now, because it's this generation, I believe, that gets to experience this amazing mysterion called the rapture. Well, the second thing that we learn about, or from Enoch, and this is just great, this is even better. I mean, it just gets better and better. Enoch was the first to promise our return. Not only was he the first person raptured, but he was the first to promise our return. Jude 14 talks about Enoch. Something that we didn't know until Jude sat down and put the pen to the paper. We didn't know this. The Bible didn't tell us this until later. Enoch, Jude 14, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied. Enoch was a prophet. This man really walked with the Lord. He's the first prophet listed in Scripture. Amazing. Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied. Well, what did he prophesy? He said, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Cool. When did that happen? Well, it hasn't yet. Those of you who have studied Revelation, you know where I'm going with this. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, gives us more insight. Zechariah 14, 5. God is prophesying through Zechariah, speaking through Zechariah, and he's talking to Israel. Make that very clear in your mind here. He's talking to Israel, and he says, You will flee by the valley of my mountains. 
For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God, Zechariah says, will come, and all the holy ones with him. Who are the holy ones? In the Hebrew, the word is kadosh, and it means clean and purified ones. In the Greek, the word for holy ones used in, in Jude 14 is hagias, and it means holy ones, or it means literally saints. A lot of scriptures will just translate it. He came with many thousands of his saints. Who are the saints? Listen closely. Zechariah is talking to the Jews. He is prophesying their future. He's saying that in the day that the Lord returns, the Jews will be in flight. They will be running for their lives in the day which he returns. But there's going to be many thousands of these saints, these hagias, these kadosh, these holy ones who return with him in the day that the Jews are all fleeing. So we know it's not Jews that he's talking about here. But Enoch comes along and prophesies the same thing, actually beats Zechariah to the punch, prophesies that many thousands of his holy ones come right along with the Lord. The holy ones are the raptured church. And this is very clearly in Scripture. We now see what happens to us. We get raptured and taken up to heaven, but then what? What happens? We come back. We come back with the Lord. We are the many thousands of His holy ones. How do we know? I mean, is this just kind of a stretch? Am I just, you know, making something up here? I think you know better. For one thing, Hagias in the New Testament. This word in the New Testament only and always refers to believers in the church. It never refers to angels, not once. Some have said many thousands of his angels come back from them, but the word hagias is not the word angelos. Angelos is the word for angels. And don't miss this fact that the Bible is literal down to the word. Why I have been so harping on and big on a word-for-word -word translation, really understanding scripture as you study, is because each word, I believe, is inspired by God. And God, in inspiring scripture, if he wanted us to understand that Jesus was returning with many thousands of his angels, he would have said, Behold, he comes with many thousands of his angelos, angels. But that's not what he said. Many thousands of his hagias, holy ones or saints. Let me give you a little more. Flip over to Revelation 19. If this is reviewed for any of you, praise God. It's such an exciting review. Revelation chapter 19, flip to the far end of the book, over there, at verse 7 and 8. Revelation 19, verse 7. This is that point in Scripture where we get to see the marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven. This is what happens to the church. When the church is raptured, during that dark time on earth of the tribulation, when God is pouring out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, during that seven-year period of time, the church is with Jesus at our honeymoon. In heaven, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Here it is, Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Who's the bride? It's always the church. The bride in the New Testament, it's the church. His bride has made herself ready. Verse 8. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Hagias. Okay? Stay with me on this. Skip down to verse 11. 
He goes on to say, John writing, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on himself, which no one knows except himself, which... Well, no, I'm not going to go there. Sure, I'll go there. The name, it's possible. It's possible that we may know what that name is. Because in Zechariah, I'm going to have to look up the verse and give it to you afterwards if you'd like to know what it is. But in Zechariah, it's prophesied that in that day he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So we're told that in the day of his return, that that's what he's going to be called. Maybe a different name here, but it might be that. The Lord our righteousness. Cool name. It's talking about Jesus. Goes on and says, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. We know that in the Word was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's Jesus. Goes on in verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, actually bright and clean, it's the exact same phrase as the verse up above that we just read. This group of people, this army clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. The Hagias. There is this is not this is not like circle thinking or, or taking left turns in logic. This is a very direct line in scripture that if you look at it, it's easy to see. That the Hagias are the saints. They are the people of God. They are the church that is raptured and that returns with him the many thousands, literally multiplied millions or multiplied multitudes of holy ones, made holy. Why? One reason, because they believed. Because they, like Enoch, believed. That's why they're holy ones. Not because they were able to squash the adulterous, lustful thoughts in their minds, but because they believed. And the church is following him back to earth in that wonderful, triumphant time of glory. And there are so many verses that cover this and talk about this, we don't even have time to touch tonight. But here's the point. If you, like Enoch, will walk with God today in faith, you will ride with him one day in fine linen, bright and clean, when he comes again. You will return with him. I will return with him. And at that point, we return not to a world that is so filled with evil, but a world that will sit under the glory and the reign of Jesus Christ for a thousand years in that time called the millennium. Revelation 19, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And the righteousness of God is given to us because of the death of Jesus on the cross. He makes us righteous by Jesus' act. Getting there, being caught up, translated, raptured, it's all about faith in Jesus Christ. Now I want to give you one last thing and we'll be done. And this is real quick, but some of you have heard this, some of you may not have. Genesis chapter 5, flip back over there. I want you to hear something. If you've heard it, again, let me just reconfirm this. I just love this. The very promise of salvation through Jesus Christ himself. The very guarantee that just believing in him can result in either my dying and being raptured again after that or in my just living and being raptured. That faith is talked about, it's embedded in Genesis chapter 5. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is embedded in this genealogy. I heard a pastor just recently who, was, who I was listening to a tape of a guy going through Genesis, and I won't say who, but he came to chapter 5, and he goes, now there are a lot of things you can say about chapter 5, and you, know, you talk about Enoch or Methuselah or whatever, and he said, but I'm not really into gene- genealogy, so let's go on to chapter 6. 
And I remember sitting there listening to it going, You missed it! There's something amazing here! Listen to this. The names of the guys in the genealogy. Now, some of you heard me talk about this seven weeks ago on a Sunday morning because I just couldn't wait to tell it. But if you weren't there, you get to hear it for the first time. Check this out. The names. When you take the names of the people in Genesis chapter 5 and write their names out like a sentence, it's amazing. Listen to this. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh, subject to death. Kenan means sorrowful. So there's your first part of the sentence. Man, appointed, subject to death, sorrowful. It's a picture of Adam's fall in the garden and mankind ever since. But then it starts to pick up a little bit in pace. Mahalalel, again the first Hawaiian mentioned in the gospel or in, in the Bible. <laughs> Mahalalel, his name means from the presence of God. Jared means one comes down. From the presence of God, one comes down. Now if I'm going too fast for you again, just stop me afterwards because I've got this written right here. Like you can get it, you can get it full there. From the presence of God, one comes down. Enoch means dedicated. So from the presence of God, one comes down. Dedicated, Methuselah meaning, dying, he shall send. Lamech's name is, to the poor and lowly, Noah, rest or comfort. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here it is straight through. Man appointed, subject to death, sorrowful. From the presence of God, one comes down, dedicated. Dying he shall send to the poor and lowly, rest or comfort. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the picture. And here, who would have known that it was tucked in a genealogy? I'll tell you what, when I get to Leviticus and studying the word of God, I'm going to keep going deep to find out what these names mean. I don't want to miss stuff like this. Amazing. Folks, let me end with this encouragement for you. Walk like Enoch. If there's any one person in the first five chapters of Genesis that you want to emulate, it's a man named Enoch. Walk like him. How do I do that? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk... In the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, like Enoch, he didn't say like Enoch, but you know. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. We got two choices here based on this study tonight. We can die like Methuselah with headstones recording our years. Or we can live like Enoch, raised up by Jesus. And I am personally holding out for the headstoneless promise. I don't want a headstone. I prefer that someone be wondering why my shoes are in the middle of Commercial Avenue. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the promise. God. Help us to live by that promise. As Jesus said, to watch, to keep our eyes open. Well, I know everybody thought we were done with Revelation, and here we are five chapters into Genesis, and the rapture, and the, and the return, and it all comes right back up. But God, what a wonderful blessing that is. That this is not something that's tied to one book in the Scriptures, but it's tied to the Scriptures. It's tied to the truth, the reality of our very existence. 
Father, help us to trust Jesus and just to believe in you. Help us to believe the words that he spoke. That if we live, even if we die, we will live again. But if we live believing, we may never die, but live forever. Either way, it's a pretty good deal. God, thank you so much. We praise you, we honor you, and we look forward to doing so throughout eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.